climate's a complicated problem. There's a lot of nuance to the solution. There's also a lot of simplicity to the solution, which is just every single thing in the world needs to be decarbonized. Welcome to another episode of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm working to share the lessons, actions, and philosophies from leaders in climate so that together we can figure out how to live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Taylor Francis, co-founder of Watershed. Taylor has been working on climate since he was 13 when he guessed Al Gore's email address and worked to present the inconvenient truth message to schools around the country. Taylor left Stripe in 2019 to co-found Watershed, a software platform that helps businesses get to net zero carbon faster. At Watershed, Taylor spends his time working with forward-thinking companies to help them bake carbon impact into their everyday business decisions. On the show today, Taylor and I chat all about carbon accounting and how his search for finding a role in the fight to stop climate change led him to found Watershed. Watershed's goal is to remove 500 million tons of carbon from the world a year. Taylor and I also discuss his take on the future of carbon accounting and how individuals fit into the picture and how Sweetgreen is using Watershed software to make their menu more carbon friendly. Taylor forged his own path to the climate race through founding Watershed. For those of you looking to get involved at a climate tech company like Watershed, we're partnering with Climate People to bring you season two of the Net Zero Life. Climate People is an incredible recruiting agency working to connect mission-driven talent with companies fighting climate change. Whether you're a candidate looking to build software that helps sequester carbon or a founder looking to hire engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions too. I'm super excited to bring this episode to your ears. Watershed is one of the leading climate tech companies in the Valley. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our socials at The Net Zero Life. Taylor, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I am super, super excited. Uh, We're going to talk about Watershed, your background, Net Zero, all that good stuff. But before we start, I'm curious, can you give me a short background on you? It looks like you've been around the startup block for quite some time and you had a climate consciousness early on in your career. When did that climate consciousness start? And at what point did you know that you're going to start a uh, climate tech company? Well, Nathan, I'm d- delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I've been obsessed with climate for a long time. I grew up in California and I remember being a 13-year-old seeing Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. And walking out of the movie theater, really riled up about how big this problem was going to be for my future if we didn't solve it and feeling like I had to do something. Um, And I went home and tried to guess Al Gore's email address and sent this cold email saying, I'm a 13-year-old in California. I want to help. What can I do? And someone wrote back from info at algore.com and said, we're actually training 500 people in Nashville, Tennessee to be the cavalry, to give the inconvenient truth talk in their communities to get this word out there. And if your mom can get you a flight and a hotel room as a 13 year old, you can be one of those people. And I said, sign me up. And so I spent all of high school basically skipping class to present about climate change at school assemblies, at parent teacher associations, libraries. I went to China for a summer. Um, And I guess the the background there is just I've been really obsessed with this problem and how generational this problem is for us for 15 years. And the thing that I always struggled with is it felt like it was easy to do something about climate that sounded good, but very hard to do something that actually mattered. 
And climate is ultimately a math problem. You know, there's a certain amount of carbon emitted every year. It's north of 50 gigatons right now. We need to cut it in half by 2030. We need to get it to zero by 2050. There's one graph that matters. It is the graph of global carbon emissions. And the thing I had always been searching for is what is the thing that I could do that would actually bend that graph in a discernible way? And I couldn't find that after college. Um, the climate bill had kind of stalled in Congress. It felt like policy was was not a road that was yielding results. I wasn't a scientist. What could I do? Um, ended up going and working at Stripe, the payments technology company, joined when they were about 100 people, spent five and a half years there building a bunch of products and operations teams. And then it was in 2019 when Avi and Christian and I, all three of us had worked at Stripe together, started kind of coming back to that carbon graph and thinking about the fact that we had only one decade as a civilization to really bend the curve and what could we do to contribute to that and Watershed emerged from some of those conversations. Amazing. So, you know, despite skipping class, you still made it into Princeton. So curious how that worked. And then I'm also, do you remember the uh, the spiel you give at an assembly? Can we get like a little tidbit of it? Oh, it was mostly then can be in truth slides. Okay. I mean, the group is called the Climate Reality Project. You can still be trained by the Climate Reality Project to give an up-to-date version of the slideshow. I think it's an amazing, they probably trained tens of thousands of people by now. Um, my particular spin on it was some kind of California-specific content that unfortunately has come to pass around snowpack and wildfires. Um, seemed like a distant future then. We are living in the world of orange skies today. And a, a sort of generational call to arms. Basically, go home, talk to your parents, demand your parents vote, because that's the thing that matters. Um, and it's great 15 years later to see the impact of Greta and Fridays for the Future and kind of the youth voice as being this clarifying catalytic thing in the whole climate movement. And so you mentioned Stripe and all three founders of Watershed are from Stripe. What, what lessons did you take from Stripe in terms of building Watershed and what kind of you left behind? Yeah. Stripe is an amazing company. Um, I think what makes it so special is number one, the level of ambition. You know, Stripe did not set out to start a payments company. Stripe set out to grow the GDP of the internet. And that means that their aspirations were much higher than what even the best entrepreneur might have pursued going down the same path. Um, so I think there's a, there's a big lesson around setting ambition as high as possible. And in some ways, you know, Patrick Carlson would always say, in some ways, it's easier to accomplish a bigger mission than a smaller mission, because you can attract great people when you motivate around something that really matters. Um, you know, Watershed, we've set our North Star as being directly responsible for reducing or removing at least 500 megatons a year of CO2. You know, 1% of the world's emissions per year UK or California or Germany's worth of carbon. We've got a long way to go. You know, watershed customers today emit about 10 million tons of CO2 per year. Um, but that's that's kind of our integration of that learning that you got to set your ambition high. It's hard to imagine an ambition more important than putting a visible dent in that carbon graph. And so you touched on it kind of in your intro uh, about like actually wanting to make a difference and. 
again, we're going to, when we talk about kind of watershed and net zero and companies, we'll get there. Uh, but in your Earth Day post, you talked about it from the personal standpoint and something that, you know, constantly investigating on the podcast is, so I have a goal to be net zero emissions by the end of 2021. And I'll be the first to say, like, you know, it's mostly going to come from hopefully credible offsets, although that's like an amazing and interesting topic in itself. Um, but two of the things that I've come to in this journey is making an impact is one, education and uh, like basically being intentional about your decisions as like a 21st century person who lives in America, who like lives on a coast and is very, you know, privileged in that way, but also is a large emitter. And two is voting. And you called out the same thing. And I was kind of curious what led you in your Earth Day post to say the first thing that everyone should do to make an impact is to vote. Two inescapable facts about the climate crisis are urgency and scale. On the urgency point, we have so little time. We have so little time. You know, people talk about the decade we have to cut carbon in half by 2030. Decade seems like a long time. If that decade started on January 1st, 2021, we are already 5% of the way through the decade. Let that sink in. Every day is 2.8 basis points of the decade. Every month is about 1% of the decade. So urgency, number one, scale, number two, this is a huge problem that encompasses the whole world. It encompasses every industry. I think when you realize that, it really points you towards what are the things you can do most impactfully in your own life. And it's things that can have impact fast at scale. I think people should absolutely lead by example in their own lifestyle. But the most impactful thing you can do is to vote for people who consider climate the existential crisis it is that is at the White House, it's in the Senate, it's in Congress, it's in your city hall, it's in your governor's office. And I think the second area is if you're a part of a company, companies have carbon impact and one person at a company can actually speak up in a way that has a lot of leverage over that carbon footprint of a corporation. So urgency and scale, those are the things that matter. Does... Curious if it's similar for you, but do you feel like naivety or imposter syndrome or just pessimism kind of floods in into the the daily fight against uh, this urgency? And is there any part of that where you like acknowledge, hey, there's a piece of whatever it is, simpleness, uh, however you want to define it, that I'm acknowledging and still kind of like you're talking about Stripe, just taking like a big audacious goal and saying, hey, you know, this is out there and we don't have a lot of time, but we're going to try. Yeah. Um, so naivete and hopelessness, I think two different axes. Um, climate's a complicated problem. There's a lot of nuance to the solution. There's also a lot of simplicity to the solution, which is just every single thing in the world needs to be decarbonized. And you don't need to be a PhD to understand that. Um, and so I think people shouldn't be intimidated by the complexity of this problem given that the solution really does boil down to something that's pretty pure and simple. Um, Hopelessness, I will call in guilty as charged as an optimist on this. I think that um, climate feedback loops are terrifying, but we're also seeing a uh, kind of climate solution feedback loop. Um, Robinson Meyer in the Atlantic called it this green vortex of policy and um, investment and uh, corporate action. It's 
starting to work. And I think we've reached a tipping point on the climate solution side that will hopefully help us race against the tipping points on the climate impact side. So no, I, I think um, the solution is decarbonization and there's reason to be optimistic and act with tremendous urgency. I love it. I'm a huge optimist as well. And I think it's kind of like, it's step one for, for joining the fight. Um, so let's get into net zero and watershed and kind of like the first principles of net zero. You know, watershed helps. You said the goal was to remove um, mega 50 or 500, 500, 500, 500 million five, tons of CO2. 500 million tons of CO2, about 1%, right, uh, of today's emissions. And you do that by helping companies, as far as I understand, by helping companies uh, create a net zero or a carbon reduction plan. So what is a carbon reduction plan and what is net zero according to Watershed? Yeah, so Watershed is a platform that enables companies to do everything they need to do to get to net zero carbon. And... Our observation is that if you're if you're a company, good news, you have a tremendous potential for impact, right? Companies make the decisions where the rubber really meets the road on carbon. They make decisions about how much energy gets used, what type of energy, how goods get transported, what suppliers are used, what energy they use. Um, and all of that is what adds up to those 50 billion tons of CO2 per year. Bad news is that today in the status quo, if you're a company trying to do something with your climate leverage, it's hard. There's a whole thicket of how do I calculate my emissions and how do I buy clean power in a way that matters? And what's the difference between an offset and carbon removal? And what's the right way to do it? And there's a whole bunch of acronyms, this kind of alphabet soup of accounting standards. And so Watershed exists to make all that easy, to be one platform that companies use to get to zero. And we work with companies like Square and Shopify, Airbnb, DoorDash, Sweetgreen, Everlane to guide them along that whole journey with this kind of set of software tools to help them be effective. Um, so what is net zero for a company? You know, net zero for the world is in some ways relatively simple. It's about total anthropogenic emissions being balanced by anthropogenic removals and we need to get there as a planet by 2050. Um, for a company, I think that means that an organization takes responsibility for making its own ecosystem net zero. Like the litmus test is if every company on earth did what you are doing, would the whole world get to net zero? If the answer is yes, then great. That is a high quality program. If no, then it's kind of window dressing on something that's, that's less impactful. And so in our view, that the, the building blocks of net zero for companies are measure your emissions comprehensively. That includes all the footprint of all your suppliers, all the footprint of all your customers using your product. Don't exclude anything. Number two, reduce your emissions really deeply. You know, the first thing to do is to cut carbon wherever you can. And then number three is fund permanent, durable, high quality carbon removal for whatever emissions remain. Um, and that's kind of watershed as a platform to make all of that tractable for businesses. One thing I've been thinking about is if you, if every company removes their scope one emissions, does that mean that scope three becomes less important, right? Uh, like you talked about, and, and maybe explain kind of scope one, scope three, the difference between the two. Yeah. So there's a whole carbon accounting world. Um, and this is actually a great thing. It's, it's awesome that we're building professionalism 
and rigor and practice and standards around counting carbon in the same way we do counting dollars, the carbon matters a lot. Scopes basically refer to what you count. And scope one refers to emissions from um, a facility or a vehicle that you as a company own yourself. So if a company owns a car and that car uses gasoline, that's a scope one emission. Scope two is emissions from electricity that a company purchases. Um, and scope three is everything else. It's the emissions of your suppliers. It's the emissions of your customers. It's the emissions of your portfolio companies. And the, uh, you know, the thing that companies find is that for virtually every company, most of their carbon footprint is in scope three. It's in the stuff they buy from other businesses. If you're a tech company, it's in the cloud that you're buying from Amazon or Google. If you're a food business, it's in the cheese that you're buying from a creamery or a dairy. Um, and part of Watershed's whole mission is to make this kind of scope three piece, think of it as the carbon ecosystem, the carbon network, the carbon supply chain, something that businesses can get visibility into and actually take action on. And the ultimate objective, as you point out, is that if everyone's pressuring on their scope three, if everyone's pressuring their carbon ecosystem, that means that all the underlying emitters will actually decarbonize their own operations. And that's how the world gets to zero. So I think about it from like Boeing's perspective, right? Let's say Boeing signs up for the watershed platform and they have a net zero path or they have a net zero, um, they have a net zero plan. Their emissions uh, from scope one perspective, right? Building the airplane and plenty of emissions in there and, and plenty to remove and, and to cut. But scope three, is it the, like whose responsibility does the, you know, the fuel burn uh, from the engines fall on? Is it Boeing, the manufacturer of the airplane? Is it Alaska, the, or, you know, Southwest, the airline? Is it Shell, the refiner and the, you know, the producer of the oil? Yeah. Or is it the consumer at the end of the day? It's such a good example. Yeah. I think that's kind of the point is that these are carbon ecosystems and you need a bunch of different players in the ecosystem to take action for anything to change. Because you know, decarbonization of aviation, which is basically gonna require deployment of sustainable aviation fuel, um, how's that gonna come about? Well, it's gonna come about if Boeing builds planes that are future-proofed for a world where aviation fuel is low carbon, it's going to come about if Alaska Airlines and United are setting goals around shifting over to sustainable aviation fuel. That's going to come about faster if companies say business travel is a big part of our scope three emissions. And so we are going to preferentially choose airlines that are deploying sustainable aviation fuel, which, by the way, is starting to happen. Microsoft did a deal with Alaska funding sustainable aviation fuel, I think, for the Seattle to San Francisco route. Awesome. Um, so that's kind of the magic here. And that's what Robinson Meyer writes about in this Atlantic piece. It's the green vortex. It's policy investing in R&D so that sustainable aviation fuel is in reach. It's Boeing making planes that are ready for that. It's Microsoft sending the demand signal. It's Alaska being the vessel for that demand signal. It all is coming together, vortexing towards a zero carbon future. Yeah, and on that route, it's uh, San Francisco to Seattle because California has their low carbon fuel standard, and sustainable aviation fuel is cheaper in California. So circling circling back to the beginning of policy, go tell your states to have low carbon fuel standards so airlines can get tax credits for sustainable aviation fuel. 
Um, so I, one of the things I want to talk about in, it, we talked about scope three and I think we're going to spend some time on it, but we were talking about airlines and, and carbon plans and I don't know if you score companies, um, but is there a world where like Southwest can have an A plus carbon removal plan or net zero plan, but Zillow who has like a much smaller footprint has a B minus um, just because their plan is better, but even though their impact is so much different? What a good question. I definitely want us to live in a world where there is rigor and com- and transparency around company climate programs. Um, Cause right now a lot of people are using the same headline in their blog posts. And there's a very different thing happening under the hood and it's nuanced and nerdy. And that should, there should be more transparency around that. I think that's happening by the way. I think that you are seeing the train leaving the station on what I call climate governance for companies where there's this set of expectations from um, regulators, investors, consumers, employees, there's a new set of standards. All of that is going to result in people being able to judge climate programs in the same way you can judge financial results. Um, And the carbon results really matter. So being able to judge those carbon results is great. To your question around, you know, comparing kind of high and low carbon um, businesses, ultimately, this is about decarbonizing sectors. And so the companies that are flexing their muscle to decarbonize their sector are the ones we should be celebrating. And that's going to show up in a different way in every sector. A company like Zillow can have a big impact on decarbonizing data centers. And actually, a company like Zillow can have a big impact on decarbonizing the built environment and you know consumer um, homes, which are a, a huge part of the carbon problem. And a company like Southwest or Alaska can have a big impact on decarbonizing aviation, I think that the mindset shift that needs to happen is from a traditional world of, I've made my own yard good. You know, I've bought offsets for my own offices and I'm going to declare myself carbon neutral and call it a day. That ain't going to cut it anymore. We're shifting to a new world where the expectation is, what are you doing to decarbonize your ecosystem? And that I think is the thing that matters really. So let's get in. Let's jump in there. How does one decarbonize their ecosystem without meticulously going through, or maybe they do meticulously go through the pipeline for each of their products? And then, if if that's the case, how does watershed kind of like to use like an Amazon word, force multiply, you know, exponentially grow its impact without having to just have like a slew of implementation consultants going through the balance sheets of each company? I'll tell you two two stories. One is how. Apple has done this, and two is how watershed customers are doing this. Apple, I think, has really led the way on climate for about a decade now. Apple has traced the carbon impact of everything that goes in your phone, everything that goes in your laptop. They are designing their products in a low-carbon way. Their sourcing teams demand that suppliers manufacture semiconductors and assemble phones using clean power. And as a result, Apple has cut its carbon footprint meaningfully at the same time its business has grown and they're going to get to zero by 2030. They have a whole team of engineers, of global supply managers who are armed with the leverage of being the most valuable company on earth to do that. Um, So that is is kind of what you've described, the meticulous material by material, supplier by supplier, 
by hand work of decarbonization works for Apple ain't going to work for every company. Our thesis at Watershed is to build the software that automates that and puts it in reach for every company. And so, you know, our customers, whether it's Sweetgreen on food or Square on their own electronic supply chain, basically upload business data about the stuff they're buying, the products they're selling, where they're shipping them. And the watershed software reads through and figures out the carbon intensity of each supplier, figures out how far goods are moving and what the carbon intensity of that different mode of transport is, and basically instantly gives the company a dashboard that says, here's where your carbon is, here's where you got to focus, here are the five things that are going to lead to reducing your footprint. Um, and so that's our whole thesis, is we want to give every company the leverage that traditionally only Apple or Amazon or Walmart had, which is to know where your carbon comes from, to know what to do about it, and then to have the market power to act on that. Taylor and I continue the discussion and dive into how companies can decarbonize their ecosystem after the break. Are you interested in living a net zero life, but you don't know where to start? The Net Zero Life host, that's me, is teaming up with a few of our colleagues to offer a free sustainability coaching for a select number of followers. Follow us on Instagram at the Net Zero Life and send us a DM to learn more. What? So curious if we can get nerdy here for a second, but how does Watershed do it? Is it through like an economic input output analysis where they're looking at the spend or is there like from the bottoms up material uh, material of the products and then like in terms of the precision and fidelity of the data itself like what's your confidence totally we look at every line item and we try to find the best carbon intensity we can and we've created a database in the back end that pulls together all the carbon numbers that are out there from company reporting, from government databases, from academic studies, and our kind of watershed carbon engine gets good at matching line items to those carbon intensities. So best case scenario, we see you bought a MacBook Pro. And we know because Apple has reported the carbon intensity of a MacBook Pro is 185 kilograms of CO2. And so we match that to that spend line item on your OPEX. Slightly less optimal but more frequent is we know you spent $300,000 with BCG, the Boston Consulting Group. And BCG reports their carbon footprint, and we know what their carbon intensity per dollar is, which comes mostly from flights um, in the kind of consulting space. And so we assign the carbon per dollar to that $300,000 of BCG spend. Um, And then the kind of worst case scenario, the backup is... uh, that you bought something from a company that doesn't report on its carbon footprint. In that scenario, we start by using industry-wide averages around the carbon intensity in that space, but we enable you to kind of press a button and say, hey, send a note to Oracle asking Oracle to report its carbon footprint. And this is the carbon data graph that is getting filled in pretty rapidly. Um, you know, There's a group called CDP, uh, that is the kind of clearinghouse for carbon data from companies, cdp.net. You look at CDP's growth graph of how many companies are reporting to CDP per year, it looks like a runaway startup. Um, And that's because carbon accounting and carbon disclosure and climate governance is really the big theme is taken off pretty fast. So that's how it works. 
what's the fidelity? It's good. It's enough to make decisions based on. We have a long way to go to get to a place where carbon data is as precise as financial data, and that's what we're trying to hasten. I'm pretty excited. I what's what the like analogy that's jumping out in my mind is it's kind of like right now we're in like at least we have a map. You know, we've got a paper map. But watershed is like Google Maps in 2006, where like the ETA was like at least two times what it was going to be, right? Or maybe MapQuest. Is, and, but in the future, whatever it is, five years from now, when we hit the tipping point of enough carbon data, we're going to be at the, oh my God, like Google knows exactly when I'm going to get there. Watershed knows exactly. Is that, you kind of see the same thing? Totally. Yeah. And I think um, it's all about getting this carb- this data to the place where decisions are made. And right now, I think we're at the fidelity where we can tell you the right areas to focus on. And that's the first step. Um, And I'm excited for us to get to a future where every single person at a company sees overlaid on their purchasing decisions, because it's generally spend when dollars moving hand, that's where carbon is getting emitted, can see overlaid like high precision on the carbon intensity of those decisions. We're not there yet, but that, yeah, that's going to be the Google Maps 2021 of hopefully watershed 2022 we don't have time to waste we can't wait 14 years for that for that transition to happen i love it and it'll be interesting i mean i'm sure i I don't run your business um but like one of the most valuable things must be the fact that you're the aggregator of this data and you're going to have this proprietary carbon database resource and within there i'm curious um are there any interesting trends you see as the aggregator? Because you kind of have like the puppet master view of all the different companies and you get to see, hey, like this is really interesting. I should go tell this other startup in maybe not San Francisco, but somewhere else <laughs> or San Francisco to go solve this problem. Yeah, we're trying to publish as much as of, about what we learn as possible. Um, two, two things stand out. One meta theme is that the charismatic solutions are not necessarily the impactful solutions. So we work with a lot of companies in the food space and kind of rightly, there has been a lot of focus on packaging. Um, And, you know, packaging is important to get better at switching compostable packaging is great. We have a waste problem on this planet. What is inside the package matters a lot more than how it's packaged. So our data shows that the beef in a hamburger drives 95x the emissions of a takeout container containing the burger. And since producing a pound of beef emits 150x more greenhouse gases than a pound of vegetables, that's where people should be focused, is what's the carbon intensity of a gram of protein. But instead, there's a lot of hand-wringing around the the container rather than the main event. Um, you know, a similar example is the question of how far does a good travel versus how does it get there? You know, there's a lot of focus on local sourcing, but shipping distance matters a lot less than how a good is transported. You know, it takes less carbon to ship a package by boat from Asia to San Francisco than to drive it by truck from San Francisco to Denver. Um, so in general, I think one of the things we're hoping to do is to shift from these charismatic sound good things to follow the numbers. Climate is a math problem. And um, it may be stuff that's not sexy that actually drives the real impact. It's so interesting. Uh, 
very similar mindset uh, in the sense that like zero waste is so in vogue right now. It's very popular. People love talking about it. And while it might not be impactful from like, you know, working backwards from parts for per, per million and bringing that number back down to pre-industrial uh, revolution times, it is kind of the recycling uh, idea, which is that like, in, if we could talk about impact of recycling, I think in, it was 2018 where China stopped accepting our recycling and the price of recycling goes down like 90%. But the fact is that like recycling for many people could have been the conduit in which that they got into the next step. And, and maybe zero waste is the same thing. Totally. Um, Patagonia put a really interesting uh, piece out. Their blog is amazing um, from like a waste and just sustainability standpoint in perspective in total. But they, they talked about how customers were complaining about the plastic sheath that came over their jacket or whatever. And they were like trying to figure out how do they, how do they remove that um, so people can be zero waste. But they said that that plastic is so important because if they have to ship you a new product because it's damaged, that is going to be multitudes more impactful from a carbon standpoint and a sustainability standpoint. So same idea. Yep. Yeah, I think that the gateway drugs are important and we need to shift to a world that follows the carbon math because this is a math problem. In terms of watershed itself, are there certain companies or certain verticals more like, um, is probably a better way to phrase it that are signing up for the platform? Um, you mentioned a few tech companies as one. Do they have, and if, if yes, kind of that my hypothesis is that that is the case, do they have an easier path to like creating a carbon reduction plan? We've actually been really intentional about working with companies across a whole range of industries. So, um, Square, and you know, I think about it in terms of what is their carbon vertical, which may be different than the vertical they're listed under the New York Stock Exchange on. So Square has a carbon vertical around hardware and electronics. Um, DoorDash has a carbon vertical around logistics and dry, you know, cars and drivers that are using gasoline. Um, Sweetgreen is a carbon vertical around food. Everlane is a carbon vertical around apparel. Um, Shopify is a carbon vertical around shipping and getting goods from point A to point B. Airbnb is basically the world's biggest hotel. Um, and there's energy that goes into that. So we actually are seeing traction, enthusiasm, and more importantly, progress all across these different verticals. And so, so two questions on there. I'm curious if you can share share a little bit about like how is Airbnb tackling kind of those scope three emissions of being of taking into consideration all of the building impact and similar with Shopify, like how are they taking into consideration all of the transportation, even though it might not be quarter their well, I mean it is quarter their business, but it's not quarter their P and L. Yeah, you know that is part of what we look for in every watershed customer is a enthusiasm to take responsibility for the whole ecosystem. Um, one example that is really near and dear to my heart is Sweetgrain. Sweetgrain has north of 100 restaurants around the, the country. They've already done so much right from a climate perspective, just having a vegetable first, low carbon menu, um, no beef on the menu, no red meat. Um, they are using Watershed to design new menu items kind of calculating carbon at the same time they calculate calories and cost and to calculate the impact of their supplier practices. You know, what is the impact of a creamery or a dairy um, using a methane digester for manure? What is the impact of how much fertilizer is used at a kale grower? Um, and so that's an example where it would have been easy for them to just say, hey, 
all we're taking responsibility for is our stores, but they are looking all the way back to the field and flexing their muscle in that way. Are there any um, are there any companies that if you could you, if you could choose, what is the one company that you wish would sign up on the watershed platform? I deeply, deeply admire Walmart, actually. Yeah. To give a sort of contrarian answer, I was about to say Patagonia and Apple. There's a but there's a, a small group of companies that have been doing climate work really well. A lot of them are in San Francisco, <laughs> or. I think what's so special about Walmart is that Walmart, long before it was cool, um, put its foot down around our carbon footprint as the carbon footprint of our suppliers. And yeah, we're going to get to net zero in our own operations, but just as important is we are going to educate our supply chain, which by the way, is basically every physical good sold in the United States. We're going to educate our supply chain about carbon accounting, carbon reduction, science-based targets, and they care a lot about getting their suppliers who are not necessarily in San Francisco, they're in Cincinnati, um, on the road to zero carbon. I think that is hugely impactful. It was one of the inspirations for us when we got started. And we'll drop it in the show notes, but there's actually a great uh, TEDx video um, about not not anyone who works at Walmart, but talking about Walmart's impact. And I think the video is from 2015. Um, so you know, not necessarily like super early in terms of like the fight against uh, the climate change, but still exactly what you're saying. It's interesting. I thought you were going to take this question very differently. I thought you were going to say like, we want Shell on the platform or we want, uh, you know, whatever it is, choose like this industrial uh, giant. Yeah. I mean, that's ultimately where it's going to change. But part of our theory of change actually is that there's a lot of leverage one or two or three hops down the carbon supply chain. You know, this is going to happen in part because companies that have leverage over their choices start to demand, hey, we want the low carbon thing. And that's going to create markets. That's going to create demand. That's going to inject capital in R&D and deployment for low-carbon cement, for low-carbon cheese, for protein alternatives. Um, and so we're actually quite intentional about trying to arm companies who are a couple hops down the carbon supply chain to exert that pressure on the green vortex. Are there any technologies that you need solved or that you're solving that's going to like, it's a kind of a long pull in the tent for watershed. And maybe it kind of goes back to that carbon database that we were talking about earlier. We're working on a lot of the data and marketplace and enabling technologies about bringing visibility to these carbon markets that exist in every decision that we don't see and bringing market access to these carbon markets so that every company can have the same leverage that an Apple or a Google or a Facebook has by virtue of their size. Um, and we've got a team of engineers and climate scientists who are working on that. But the big hard technology problems in decarbonization, I think, have more to do with sort of the unsolved sectors. You know, if we've, we've got some map on how to decarbonize electricity. We have some map on how to decarbonize transportation. It's an agriculture and manufacturing where we need some breakthroughs. Um, breakthroughs that I think are completely in sight, right? This is not a science fiction problem anymore, but it is 
in some sectors an R&D problem and in other sectors like electricity and transportation, it's more of a deployment problem. So we've got some hard, interesting technical problems we're solving, but I don't want to undercut the importance of the people who are working in the labs on clean cement and protein alternatives and building materials and sustainable aviation fuel and some of those really important areas. Do you have a framework for looking at grouping emission categories that you've built through your work at Watershed? Either for, and this could be, um, I, you know, I'm interested, obviously, you know, or not obviously, but I, I, as I understand it, Watershed's more business to business. But even if you have built one for from the consumer side as well, I'd be curious to hear that too. You know, categories take on different shapes at different steps of the carbon supply chain. So one of the things one of the first tool features of Watershed we made was a Sankey diagram. I think Sankey diagrams are you know, these awesome flow charts that trace, in the climate case, carbon through from source to ultimate usage. And the reason we did that is because it's really interesting to see how at different stages of the supply chain, um, and by the way, in the source notes, we should put the WRI Sankey diagram that I think is, is really excellent. Um, Saul Griffith also has one that uh, is, is stellar as well. Um, but for companies, you know, it kind of shows up to a company as cloud or office or business travel or commute. And then it gets traced all the way back to kind of the five underlying carbon sectors around transportation, buildings, agriculture, heavy manufacturing, and electricity and energy. Um, and so, yes, we, we do a lot of different, uh, a lot of different data visualizations on the different steps of that Sankey. Yeah. And, and for uh, people who might not have heard Sankey in the reference to climate, um, will be very popular because it's in Reddit. People put it on their, uh, their net worth all the time, uh, for people who like to troll Reddit. Um, last question on watershed, and then we'll kind of just go to a quick fire round, but what does watershed success look like for both you uh, and watershed as a company and the world at large? I mean, we measure our success by the impact on the carbon graph. So 500 megatons of CO2 per year reduced or removed directly as a result of our work. That's what we're working towards. Um, hopefully there'll be you know, second order indirect knock-on effects as well, which is if we're able to help our customers cut carbon by that much, and it sends this demand signal into the green vortex that will enable technology to deploy faster. It'll enable costs to come down more rapidly, and that will have knock-on effects elsewhere in the economy. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's the mission. That's the goal. And our job is to make that a no-brainer from a business perspective for American companies. And to do the kind of unglamorous work of, of, of boiling decarbonization into something that complex organizations can metabolize. Um, and that's ultimately what we spend every day doing. On to you. Since founding a company, are there any things that you've become more either self-conscious of uh, from like your personal carbon footprint or things you've changed now that you, you know, are the face uh, or part of the face of a climate corporation or climate focused corporation? Um, I think the big message is around the speed and scale that's required. And so voting and talk and raising your hand at your all hands, if you work for a company that has carbon leverage, those are the things that really matter. 
is there anything that you acknowledge like in your personal life that you, you know it's not good for the world but you're just not ready to give it up i haven't made the vegetarian jump yet oh, and it's pretty hard when you look at the data to justify eating animal-based protein i haven't i haven't uh, i haven't crossed over to the good side on that one yet so one thing that I've done through this journey, and I, I, you know, not preaching, feel free to throw this out the window, but we made our house vegetarian or pescatarian really. So now we don't cook meat in the house, um, which is like a good mechanism to, to reduce our, our, our consumption. And then, but if we go out, uh, then we'll, then we consider eating it. So food for thought, literally, um, sustainability superheroes. Are there any people that come to mind when you think about that? I think we all owe a debt to the climate scientists who have been um, ringing the alarm bell for a long time. And, you know, going all the way back to Svante Arrhenius, who actually figured this out back in the 1800s, you know, this, this climate science is not a uh, new revelation. Um, Roger Revelle, Keeling, James Hansen, and a whole group of people today who are kind of watching with outrage as the whole world discovers that the climate models they've been talking about for decades are indeed playing out on the headlines every day. So um, we owe a lot to them and we've let them down because had we only listened, we would be decades ahead of the curve here. And the reason we're in such a dire state is that we've let, we've, we've, we've procrastinated as a country and as a civilization so long. Have you read the wizard and the prophet? I actually haven't. Do you know the book that I'm referring uh, yeah, to? Yeah. Okay. I have it on my bedside table, but I've not read it yet. Okay. I was wondering if that's where you kind of got all this, uh, all the environmental history portion. It's amazing. You should read it. Uh, I've talked about it a lot. Are you familiar with the framework? Um, tell me. So the innovator, so the wizard is the innovator, right? We can like, earth has no fixed carrying capacity we can emit all we want and we're going to innovate our way out of change the profit is we have a fixed carrying capacity there's a fixed amount of anthropogenic or human caused emissions we can deal with and we have to change our ways to bring that number down uh where do you fall well i think the answer is both um of course of course the the profit is right about um constraints and the wizard is right about the way we innovate our way to a low carbon world Fair enough. Is there one book or podcast or other form of media that has shaped your views on carbon, sustainability, net zero? Hal Harvey is an unsung expert on climate policy. Uh, He wrote a book called Designing Low Carbon Solutions. Um, I think it's excellent. I think it is, it shines a spotlight on climate as a math problem and points you towards what are the sectors in what countries with what solutions that actually will have the carbon impact that matters? And he's an advocate for what I would call um, kind of quiet, high impact policy. You know, there's a very small number of energy regulators in this country who are not subject to the whims of Trumpism and are um, making rules out in the open, but in a kind of low emotion way that have enormous impact on how quickly clean power gets deployed. And so Hal Harvey is great at kind of spotlighting, here are the venues where the carbon decisions get made, where we can make progress without it being a huge emotional debate. 
designing low carbon solutions. Yeah, we'll definitely put it in the show notes. Net zero, N-E-T dash Z-E-R-O or N-E-T space Z-E-R-O? Space. Okay. All right. I'm going to have to change all my blogs uh, and all my posts if that's the case. Um, thank you so much. I had a great time. Two final questions for you. Really kind of three, but one of them's in the same. You know, is Watershed hiring? And if yes, or even if no, what do you say to people interested in joining? Oh, what a great question. We are hiring so many people in all different roles. Watershedclimate.com slash jobs has all the different roles we're hiring for. Um, we need great people. This is an enormous you know, planetary mission. Um, and we need people who are passionate about climate, but we also need people who are great at their craft. And that craft could be writing, the craft could be design, it could be engineering, it could be sales, it could be operations. Um, we'd love people to jump aboard. What do you look for in a hire? Or just like any kind of skill set or like personality you're looking for? Yeah, I think we're looking for this intersection of passion and craft passion for making the world better, passion for the mission, craft in um, really caring about whatever it is that you do and either being excellent at it or more likely being on a journey towards excellent in in your day-to-day work. Um, We're also hoping to build a company of people who are kind, not just not jerks, but like proactively good humans um, because there's long hours on this climate fight and it's a lot more fun with people who are good. Sidebar, can, I, I feel like I want to come work for you guys. Um, Marshallclimate.com <laughs> slash jobs. Yeah, I'm excited. I don't know if I can add value. Um, but Nathan, I, uh, we need you. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you so much. How should people get in touch uh, with you or with Watershed? Yeah, I'm Taylor at watershedclimate.com. And what a joy. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks again to Taylor for joining us today. You can connect with Taylor on LinkedIn or reach out through email taylor at watershedclimate.com. Get in touch with me and the rest of the Net Zero team via all of our socials by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and is in no way reflective of my employer. It's also not investment advice or anything else that can get me sued. This episode was produced by Tani Levitt. The original music was composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks for listening. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.